Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston and this is the show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are making the news here in Ireland and around the world. Coming up on today's show, we'll be exploring everything from Davos to Disney. As global leaders gathered in the Swiss Alps this week, we're going to look at the origins of the conference and find out exactly what's been happening over there. And over at Disney, the executive chairs were spinning like a merry-go-round. I'll be chatting to the FT's LA chief about all the drama in the boardroom at one of the largest media companies in the world. And finally, we'll ask why so many Chinese investors are suddenly flocking to the Emerald Isle. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, for one week every January, a small Swiss village becomes the epicentre of geopolitical intrigue, economic debate and Olympic style shoulder rubbing. Davos has become the home of an event that tracks business leaders, politicians, the odd celebrity and many, many esteemed journalists. And I'm delighted to be joined by one of them now. British journalist and co-host of the News Agents podcast, John Sopel. You're very welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. Randy, thank you so much for inviting me. Not at all. Now, I cannot imagine for a second that this is your first spin on this particular merry-go-round. Can you just give us a flavour of what it is like to be a journalist travelling to Davos? Okay, so the first time I think I came, I was presenting a Sunday political show on BBC One in the UK, and I'd come out to interview Tony Blair, who was then the Prime Minister. And uh, his people said to me, look, if you want to have a chat with uh, the prime minister before your interview, he's going to be at this particular reception at this particular time in this particular hotel. So I went there, small room. I mean, no bigger than someone's living room, really. I walk in and there's Tony Blair and there's Desmond Tutu and there's Prince Andrew and there is Bono. And there is Claudia Schiffer, and there is the president of Mozambique, and there is Bill Gates and Melinda Gates. I was the only person in the room that I hadn't heard of. And I thought, <laughs> well, this is this is Madame Two Swords that's come to life. And it, it was and that's the sort of weirdness. And it was and last night I was uh, a reception, you know, a do uh, in this kind of log cabin. I mean, a glorified log, big log cabin, out in the middle of nowhere, where, again, uh, Tony Blair was funnily enough there. The Labour Party leader was there. Uh, a couple of government ministers were there. A princess was there. There were two US senators there. And, you know, all these, and you just think, you keep, your head keeps turning, you think, Oh my God! Who's, oh my! Look who there! Oh, over there as well! And it's just everywhere you go, you think it's sort of like a fantasy fantasy dinner party game. I can't believe all these people are here. And kind of part of you is part of me is cynical about it, and part of me thinks, well, you know what? It's kind of pretty impressive that an awful lot of people are able to get an awful lot of business done by coming to this weird event. Mm. Yeah, and we'll come back to that in a moment about how much is actually achieved. And if there was an award for name dropping, John, I would be giving you the gold medal for that. Well well done. And of course, we here in Ireland, we don't think there's any summit that can happen internationally that has any kind of credence if Bono's not there. So yeah, (laughs) that's a must for us. Um, John, like, you know, there's a growing sense that globalisation is diminishing and there's a sense, you know, you know, looking at this from afar, at least, that there's 
there's there's a little bit of loss really in the cachet of this event. Um, does it still have the gravitas? Does it still get the business done that it did years ago? I know it's over fifty years old now, but do you think it's it's still a place where people can credibly get business done? I think people get credit. Business gets done but not in maybe the way that you think. I mean, I don't think it's because of debates on the floor or some of these kind of lofty, windy themes that they talk about. And it's it's sort of like listening to a word salad of some of the kind of things that are under discussion. And they're also, you know, they're also discussing sustainability and one in 10 of the people that are here have arrived on private jets. Yeah, it's hardly, <laughs> it's hardly the, the greenest gathering in the world, I'd imagine. Exactly. You're, you know, you think you're having a laugh. Um, but the fact that, you know, bank governors are able to meet on the sidelines or politicians are able to meet. And, you know, I saw the T-shirt, uh, you know, Leo Varadka there today. He was walking through the halls. Um, you know, they must think it's worth their while hmm. to come. Because, it, I, I mean, I think that it's it's sort of like Love Island, meets dreary politics where there is this sort of speed dating going on mm. and, that and you you kind of have 15 minute slots you arrange to meet this one and that one you're you know you're at do you're at breakfast from 6 a.m you're then at kind of you know having a nightcap somewhere organized until you know one in the morning and you're getting to meet an awful lot of people so you know if you're the labor party leader in the uk Keir Starmer, you know you've never been before mm. and he kind of clearly thought it was worth his while because it establishes him a bit on the world stage. He meets an awful lot of people who, if he becomes prime minister, he'll have to do business with. And so, you know, the calculation is made. It is worth my while coming out. And so whilst I think you're right to say that the high water of kind of internationalism, globalization has probably passed, particularly because of the pandemic, because of food security, because of Ukraine, and people are thinking, geez, we need to have our own, you know, we need to make sure that we can feed our own people mm. and have, and, or, or, and also in a medical emergency, we need, be, need to be able to supply our own PPE, uh, which we weren't able to do when the pandemic struck. So yeah, maybe the peak of globalization has passed, but there's still an awful lot of things to do. Mm. And I think that makes it, I think the calculation for a lot of politicians, for bankers and the rest is it's still worth coming. Yeah, let's look at some of the issues that they looked at uh, this week. And I know you've been talking to Keir Starmer and you're absolutely right. Keir Starmer made headlines in Ireland this morning from 6am. He was part of the news bulletin. And I don't think if he was making a speech with no disrespect in Nottingham University, it would have hit the headlines in the way that it did when he was at Davos. What was his message over there? What was he talking to you about? Well, I think he... Uh, funnily enough, I also we also spoke to the former British Foreign Secretary William Hay, mm. Conservative, who was you know leader of the Conservative Party, uh, and I kind of thought it was kind of interesting that they were both saying very similar things. That there is very deep alarm about Britain's place in the world post Brexit. Uh, Keir Starmer was more cagey about that, but it's clear that an awful lot of people think that the United Kingdom has become a basket case. That investment is low, that it's got the slowest growth rate in the G7, that it's only one of the G7 countries that whose economy has not grown to pre back to pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, and what is it that's unique about Britain compared to a lot of these other countries? 
Brexit. Mm. And, and so, you know, I think that there is a feeling that they, they just want to bang the drum for Britain and try to convince people industrialists, billionaires, that it is still a good place to come and set up their factory or whatever it happens to be, uh, to manufacture, to do services, and that Britain is still a big player. And I think that for, for the British, it's even more urgent probably to be at Davos than it is for, say, some other countries which are, you know, still, relatively speaking, coming out of the post-pandemic cycle that we've been in. Mm. And beyond the international headlines that they can get from it, I suppose those soft meetings around the margins of the debates, as you said, can be can be very effective. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to John Sopel of the New Agents podcast. Back to Davos now. So who else has been there? Who else have you been talking to? Is there anybody who struck you as making a big impact at this year's meeting? I think the biggest impact has been made by, I mean, you know, so kind of on in head straight headline terms, Olaf Scholz, mm. um, you know, the the German Chancellor was there. I met kind of almost it was almost casually informal that you're at a reception, you've got a drink in your hand, you're in a heated room, and I met last night, and and this moved me enormously, was the head of Ukrainian Energy, and okay. I thought, oh my God, mm. you are the guy that is trying to keep the lights on and the heating going in the depths of a bitterly cold winter while Russian forces are attacking with drones, attacking with missiles, critical infrastructure. Mm. And you kind of think that actually you can be up this mountain and think all is well with the world. Everything is wealthy. And yeah, we're talking about poverty and hunger and all those things, but people have got full bellies and they've got plenty to drink. And just meeting somebody like that, for whom the challenges are just awesome and existential, I I think is kind of humbling. And Mm. so the fact that you're not shutting shutting out the world uh, and a cognizant of some of the nightmares that people are going through, um, I, I think is important. And of course, he would have been dealing with that tragic inc- accident where yeah. they, they lost their own interior minister. Um, and yeah, as you say, the scale of what an enormity of what they're dealing with, very difficult for us on a human level to even comprehend that. Did Ukraine as an issue um, for global leaders feature um, heavily in this summit or was it just something on the margins of Europe? Did you get a sense that, you know, beyond what we're dealing with, it was a wider concern? Look, I think it is the most shocking event in probably most of our lifetimes, the idea that, you know, in Europe, uh, the invasion has taken place of another country and the invasion has been led uh, in contravention of all international law by a permanent member of the Security Council, Russia. So I think that there is a a, a profound sense of shock about all of that. But you've still kind of got all the other debates going on about green energy and, you know, the other things that Davos is best known for. I'm not sure how agile Mm. it is when it comes to adjusting to the kind of war footing that much of Europe feels that it's on. And if you're in a country that is bordering Russia or bordering Ukraine, you are feeling quite vulnerable now. Mm. And I'm not sure how good Davos is at doing that when it much prefers to kind of, you know, be talking about the bigger themes of global cooperation and the like, you know, which kind of people 
love to talk about. But I think Ukraine undoubtedly has been the backdrop to so much. Just coming back closer to home now, and you mentioned Brexit earlier, there's a new national pastime in Ireland and it's called Brexit and the Brexit Protocol. Uh, we just love talking about it. It's endless. Uh, has there been any, has that surfaced on, on the margins of any of the things you've been covering? Well, um, I, I mean, we I caught up with um, the, the T-shirt today and asked Leo Faradko, you know, what he thought. Um I mean, it wasn't an interview. We were just, he was rushing down a corridor. We were chasing after him, <laughs> trying to get, you know, catch a word. Um, if, if, if things were done by sentiment, then I think we're in a really great place and hopefully there'll be an agreement. Mm. But it's not just sentiment. It's about agreement. It's about hammering out details. It's about people having escape ladders so that they can climb down from maybe lofty positions that they might need to do. But I do think that with Boris Johnson gone, with Liz Truss gone, I think in Rishi Sunak, you've got a leader who wants to solve problems rather than escalate rhetoric. And I think that now the question is what what happens if he finds a way through, but either his own right wing of his party, the you know, say, we're not putting up with that, or the DUP say, we're not putting up with that. Mm. And that is when the rubber hits the road. But in terms of atmospherics, in terms of sentiment, in terms of mood, I would say we're in a very different place than we were a few months ago. Mm. Um, but, you know... Uh, there was a John Major phrase that it was so kind of out of the 1950s when he was prime minister. Where he said, "Well, that doesn't butter any parsnips." And I think that <laughs> I don't think that you know sentiment gets the deal done. It helps. No, it's the first important step. Absolutely, um, still a long way to go. But you know, I think the mood music is far better. That's than it's been yeah, for a while. That's exactly it. I think the temperament around it, the mood music, the engagement has certainly been a lot better. Still a lot of hurdles, but, you know, it's completely different to what it was like with Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. So let's hope that they can move things along. So um, just going back to that celeb part of the Davos meeting, go on, make us a little bit sick. Tell us who else is there, who else you've been rubbing shoulders with this week. Well, no, no, honestly, you know, uh, I, I am just a humble footman here yeah. trying to do my job. No, it, you know, look, you know, there were in this room last night, there was also uh, a princess. There was, you know, it's just that sort of thing. And that there, it's just you know, how you roll, John. It's just how well, you no, roll. I just, I, so, so I thought, God, that, those two blokes walking down the street. Now, they look familiar. Who the hell are they? What's government? And I realised it was Peter Schmeichel and Emmanuel Manich from the ex-Man United players. <laughs> Very good. Of course. Well, they're in Davos. Of course. Where I, else would they be? I almost made it there once myself. I was working for the Irish government and we got as far as Zurich and then the weather became extremely bad. Oh, no. Yeah, and they warned us about the helicopter ride. So I'm, I'm afraid I, ha- I bailed at that point. I just didn't I make the play. final. It's difficult to get to, though, isn't it? Oh, it's a pain in the backside mm. to get to. I was about, about to use another word. Um, it was, it, yeah, I mean, you know, if you land at Zurich Airport, you get a train from Zurich Airport into Zurich. You change trains. You get another train from Zurich to a place called Landquart, where, and then you get the, and then you change there and you then catch the train up to Davos Platz. Um, the train from 
Lankwart up to Davos is one of the most beautiful train drives rides you will ever go on because you're just winding up the mountain mm. and you've got these snow covered peaks and it you know on a fine day it looks beautiful but how is it possible that this anonymous little ski town not known for anything much you know from 51 weeks a year is just kind of gets along with life quietly and for this one week it becomes a completely different animal and do you it think is, that did you think that's why bonkers. they chose that location or is there any rationale around why there's no rationale there's no rationale at all yeah. it, it, Klaus, there's this guy who founded davos called Klaus schwab who had this dream of setting it up in uh, the mountains of davos it grew and grew and grew there is a huge congress center i mean the, the you have to book a hotel room for four nights and i think i'm in one of the cheapest hotel rooms well, that you can find and it's about two and a half thousand pounds for you know you know two thousand eight hundred euros or whatever it is for four nights well but, think, but worst room in the hotel or not john nobody feels one bit sorry for you i've got to tell you but thanks very much for joining us and we let you let you get back to your busy schedule so I, haven't, I haven't got the sympathy vote is what not you're not say. at all not at all. But thank you very much, John. Pleasure to talk to you. That was John Sopel of the New Agents podcast. This is News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. And next up, we'll be talking to the Financial Times journalist Jude Weber about the growing trend of Chinese citizens who are investing in Ireland. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Ireland's decade-old immigrant investor programme soared in popularity in 2022 with a number of would-be investors, particularly from China, coming back to twice the annual record which was set in 2019. To tell us what's spurring such a large number of wealthy Chinese people to invest here, I'm joined now by Jude Weber of the Financial Times and she's their Irish correspondent. Jude, you're very welcome to Taking Stock for the first time. Thanks very much, Mandy. Now, before we get into what's happening on the Chinese investor side, can you just take us through what the options are uh, for investment through the Irish Immigrant Investor Programme? Yeah, it's a programme. It doesn't give you citizenship. Mm. It doesn't give you a passport. It's not um, a a golden visa. Um, It doesn't give you anything more than residency. And there's kind of strings attached. You can invest a million into an Irish enterprise um, or you can invest a million into um, an an investment fund or you can invest two million into um, a stock exchange listed real estate investment trust or you can just donate 500,000 or that's actually 400,000 if there are five investors who join forces and invest together. So basically it's either a, an investment or it's a donation. Um, the donation's smaller, obviously it's four or 500,000. Um, and, and that gets you residency for, um, uh, for three years and, um, and then that can be extended. Okay, but as you say, it doesn't provide passports, it's not offering citizenship. So what's actually driving the increase in in interest from the Chinese industry uh, in particular? Well, the Chinese in particular, what what people have said to me, and it's people who have um, availed of the scheme or people who are sort of working to bring investors into the scheme, they say that, you know, it's really a question of, there, there, there's several things, but uh, fundamentally, you know, the reason they're looking outside China is they're looking for security. Mm. And what attracts them to Ireland is it's an English-speaking country. It's very welcoming. Um, education is, is very strong here. And so, you know, a lot of people come here because they want... Um, they want to use the schools, and so so really, it's a it's a sort of it's a hedge against the uncertainty 
that mm. they might they feel might be um you know might be happening in in china um you know and they're looking at other places obviously it's not all chinese it's almost all chinese predominantly but there are a few other nations and the, one of the things that surprised me was that there were also um investors from the us and again that's to do with the sort of political po polarization um since trump uh, and people are just looking for a sort of a a safe haven a safe bet if you like mm, because political uncertainty often drives a lot of um, inward investment doesn't it so you mentioned there we're seeing interest from other places where else um, maybe maybe increasing looking at that investor program well, it's, I mean, it's predominantly really, it's, it's sort of more than nine out of 10 is Chinese, but there's also a few from a sort of a handful from Vietnam, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, the US, um, and China also includes Hong Kong as well. Mm -hmm. And like, has the, the nature of the programme here in Ireland changed uh, over the years from its original iteration? I think it's just grown. Mm. I mean, um, it's and it's and it's slightly different to um, the kinds of programs that are on offer in other countries, uh, which might be where you have to invest in property. Here, it's actually investing in in a sort of an investment fund or a thing, you know, an, a, an enterprise. Um, some of the funds that um, that people invest in invest in um, uh, uh, nursing homes or. or social housing, things like that. So so a distinction, you know, the people who organise um, these funds and, and try and seek investors say that it reaches the type of investment, you know, it reaches parts of the economy that, that wouldn't otherwise be reached and that, um, that other countries that have similar, because a lot of countries have sort of similar kinds of programmes, they wouldn't necessarily get investors into those parts because they require you to buy property and, and, and only property. Mm. Yeah, and obviously, you know, investing in areas that are particularly important in our economy at the moment, like housing, which is causing so many domestic um, problems in, in their own right. If you're just tuning in, this is News Talks Taking Stock and I'm chatting to Jude Weber of the Financial Times. She's our Irish correspondent and we're talking about Ireland's Immigrant Investor Programme. Jude, you mentioned there, um, you know, that the, the programme has grown over the years, but have there been things that have, you know, reset it for particular countries like the pandemic? Has that sort of made um, Chinese investors look externally much, much more than they would have in the past? So has the pandemic affected it in any way? Well, I think it has because um, obviously China was locked down until very, very recently. Um, and so that was another thing that, um, you know, that people who, you know, were, were feeling, you know, that, that that wasn't something they wanted. Um, it gave them the option to to move abroad. And I spoke to one person who ran his business from here remotely, mm. um, you know, because he couldn't get into China uh, because, you know, he, he would have had to stay, I suppose, um, um, and, and because of the, the very strict COVID requirements. But actually, it's worth mentioning as well that um, the, even though this is an investor program and an, a, a residency program, people don't actually have to move here um, and live here all the time. They can just live one one day a year. Um, so it's it sort of gives that flexibility. But like you were saying, I mean, I think COVID was a driver in particular for the Chinese um, because they just had such very, very strict um, COVID uh, um, restrictions. Mm. Are there particular areas as well as sectors like geographically where Chinese investors are gravitating, gravitating towards particularly? 
No, I mean, I think a lot is in Dublin, mm-hmm. um, you know, big cities. But, um, but you know, I've seen projects um, in, in I don't know, Mayo, for example, uh, in Donegal. Um, I think it's, you know, there, there, are, there are opportunities in different parts of the country. Um, but, you know, obviously Dublin, if people are going to actually take up the residency, probably Dublin is, is going to attract quite a lot of people. Mm. And what about the sectors there? You mentioned nursing homes and housing. Are there other areas where you see particular investment coming from China? Yeah, I mean, hospitality as well, um, you know, hotels, things like that, you know, um, it's, 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 it's those sorts of long term construction, long term, you know, funding um, options that, uh, that I suppose give them the security um, to invest. And um, and that make it an interesting investment for Ireland, um, and 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 one that um, you know they can the these funds can go out and find investors for. But I mean, you know, certainly um, hospitality, um, um, housing, nursing homes, that kind of thing, social, um, sort of the social sector in a sense. That's um, that's very big. Mm. I recall being on a trade mission to to China many years ago and kind of looking at the scale of. Uh, what their business operations were and thinking like, is there any point to this? Like, how are we going to get them attracted in Ireland? And somebody on the, the trade mission, I think from the IDA, made the point to me like, we just need to get a small amount of that to make a significant difference because there's there's a lot of deep pockets over in China, isn't there? Well, there's a lot of deep pockets. There are, you're right. But um, but I mean, I was talking just then about the the, the investments that they might want to make. Mm. But obviously, what we've seen is the other sort of avenue, which is the donations. Um, and if people want to invest, Chinese people want to invest sort of 400,000 or 500,000, um, which, you know, to to perhaps some people might not seem a lot to to Chinese to some Chinese people maybe that's um, who are interested in you know having a Western education for their children for for example or who are concerned about the political instability perhaps that's not a lot and and they can make these donations and those ones can go into sporting and cultural. Um, uh, projects mm. and that's where we've seen GAA stadiums and um, and community centers and things like that mm. um, so those those are donations and as a, you know as you say there are lots of people in China with a lot of money and, and perhaps they think that this is a, a very reasonable price to pay and finally um, Jude if I can ask you just about the relationship between Irish and Chinese people do they work well together well the the Chinese people that I've met um, who have um, taken taken up this this program? They're just delighted by Ireland. You know, I met um, I met one of them in the pub, and um, uh, you know, he was just thrilled to bits. He was ordering his Guinness and drinking it like a like an Irish person. And um, you know, and, and I spoke to another um, person whose son goes to goes to Trinity, in fact. Um, and you know, they do seem to be very you know very happy here. Um, I think it's very different. Um, and 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 that's you know part of the attraction. But the the thing that they kept on saying over and over to me was that they were very pleased with the welcome and they felt very at home here. Yeah. So um, yeah, so they, they they do seem to like it. Well, very often we take our freedoms and things like our universities and and that for granted. But uh, yeah, look, this is a very interesting insight into that world. Um, but for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Jude Weber of the Financial Times. Jude, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. There was drama at Disney this week. The return of an old face hoping to revive the flagging media giant. Find out what's going on at the company after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, take a quick listen to this. Hi-ho, 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 hi-ho. It's home to 
That was, of course, from Disney's iconic Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Well, there's not a lot of whistling going on around the Disney boardroom tables at the moment. But for many, many years, Disney was a familiar sound and sight to so many of us as just wholesome, good family fun. It certainly for me evokes lots of childhood memories going along to the cinema to see those iconic movies. But of late, all is not well. Disney's top brass became really dissatisfied with their current CEO, who after a tricky couple of years was unceremoniously fired, only to be replaced by his predecessor, Bob Iger. So what exactly is going on and what will this upheaval mean in terms of its um, ambition? for new viewers and eyes on screen. We're joined now by Christopher Grimes, who is in Los Angeles, and he's the Bureau Chief there for the Financial Times. Christopher, thanks very much for joining us on Taking Stock today. Uh, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, Bob Iger, I've mentioned him there. He's now the new CEO, and I use that in adverted commas, but it's not his first spin on this particular merry-go-round. Can you just tell us to, to kick off today, who exactly is Bob Iger? So Bob Iger uh, was a Disney lifer who became CEO to replace uh, Michael Eisner back in uh, about 2007. And Iger uh, became, in his tenure, uh, one of the most celebrated CEOs in corporate America. He, um, he transformed Disney by making some really bold acquisitions like Pixar he bought uh, Marvel, which turned into this huge franchise of, of movies. And uh, he also bought Lucasfilm, which owns the Star Wars franchise. So all of a sudden, Disney had some of the biggest names in entertainment. And, uh, you know, the, it really did change Disney forever and make it, made it, you know, the top entertainment com- company in Hollywood. He also bought a company called 21st Century Fox, which is home to Avatar and The Simpsons. And this has become um, a topic of late, which I'm sure we'll get into here. Absolutely. Yeah, he he certainly transformed it, making it into that multinational juggernaut. And one of the other things that he did was he kind of identified a successor um, and a protege. Who was this and what happened to him? Well, the succession story with Iger is really interesting because he uh, he was very good at the job. He loved the job and he didn't want to leave the job. So uh, Bob Iger um, extended his contract a few times before he finally left. And even when he left and handed the reins over to Bob Chapek in 2000, he kind of remained on as chair and uh, had this position where he um, oversaw creative efforts uh, alongside Bob Chapek, who was uh, CEO. Uh, and it was a tumultuous thing. Um, the pandemic happened just as Bob Chapek took over as CEO. Bob Iger was still in the company, and tensions between the two guys surfaced really quickly. Um, then Bob Chapek, you know, he... Uh, uh, he had to weather the get the company through the pandemic uh, when the theme parks were shut down and people couldn't go to the movies. He had to put workers on furlough. It was really difficult. Um, the one bright spot uh, in his tenure was that the uh, Disney Plus streaming service rocketed uh, uh, as people stayed home and uh, binge watched. Right. So that was a that was the good thing that happened for him. But otherwise, it was a really rough time. 
Mm. And uh, lots of things happened with him, but he finally um, was uh, dismissed abruptly by the board in November and they brought Iger back. So Mm. he's been back now for about eight weeks. I'm always very suspicious of people who are so invested in their successor um, and and remain on because I don't think it ever ends well. Um, and But this is such, I suppose, um, it's such a big company. It's got so m- many um, interests now, far and wide. It's changing as well. What what exactly was it, though, that Chapek did um, that alienated so many in Hollywood? So Chapek, um, Chapek, obviously was keen to put his own stamp on the company uh, after, you know, succeeding this larger than life figure. Mm. And he believed that radical change was needed inside the company to, um, to help it compete and work in the streaming age. And these changes really alienated a lot of the talent. He famously um, got into a war with uh, Scarlett Johansson and her agent uh, here in Hollywood um, over um, how she would get paid for Black Widow. Um, And uh, long story short on that, uh, uh, people like Scarlett Johansson, really big actors and actresses would... um, start to get a bonus on uh, in their pay for good performance at the box office. But because they were um, sort of emphasizing streaming, they, they said that we didn't have to pay that, that bonus. And, and that led to a big standoff. So this, this led a bad taste. It left a bad taste in the mouth of people uh, in the talent community in Hollywood. Um, so that, that was a big controversy. Mm. And then last year came the, uh, the clash with, um, with the Florida governor over what was dubbed by its critics as the Don't Say Gay law. Yeah, this was the Ron DeSantis row. It was a kind of culture war about what is what teachers can say about LGBT plus issues. So what was that all about and how did they get involved in that? Yeah, so uh, Disney obviously has a huge business uh, in Florida. They um, they're the largest private employer in Florida with the, all of the theme parks near Orlando, Florida, and um, they also employ a lot of people in the LGBTQ plus community in Florida um, who work at the theme parks and uh, uh, and so forth. So when that law or when that was just a bill in the Florida legislature, a lot of uh, Disney employees said, you know, we have to come out and oppose this. Bob Chapek was reluctant to make a political statement on that. Um, And uh, he was quiet. And this upset a lot of the employees Mm. who uh, threatened to walk out over it. And this forced Chapek's hand to finally make a statement. And when he did, he made uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of the state, who um, uh, right now appears to be the front runner for the Republican nomination of the, for uh, president in 2024. It made Ron DeSantis really angry and he retaliated hard against the company, um, and, and including by... Um, 
moving to strip Disney of the special tax privileges that it has in Florida and has enjoyed since uh, uh, Walt Disney and Roy Disney first went to Florida in the 1960s. And that's ongoing. Well, yeah, maybe they're displaying, you know, his his lack of street smarts and dealing with the political terrain in a way that maybe Bob Eager is, is much better at, at doing. One other area where Disney has um, failed spectacularly of recent uh, years is, is their share price, of course. I think that's down about 40 percent. How does something like that obviously has a huge bearing on a massive company like that? What, what did the board do um, about that changing dynamic? Of the share price, right? So I think, um, yeah, you know, interestingly, there was during the pandemic when they were adding lots of streaming subscribers, the stock was doing pretty well. Um, uh, but you know, considering their theme parks were shut down and um, and the the theaters were shut, uh, but Wall Street was really supportive of the of the streaming endeavor. But about this time last year, uh, Netflix, which had been the pace setter for all of this, uh, shocked the markets and said that uh, instead of adding millions of subscribers, they were actually losing subscribers. And mm-hmm. um, it sent a signal that uh, uh, to investors that this streaming business couldn't just uh, increase forever. Um, and so that, that really changed the tone in the media industry. Uh, and, and so the shares of all the companies have gone down. Um, I think, uh, Disney's stock last year also took a hit because of questions about, about the leadership. Um, the, the, I think the don't say gay thing, uh, didn't reflect well on, uh, Bob Chapek or the board, uh, the board of directors supported <laughs> supported Chapek after the "Don't Say Gay" controversy. Uh, then they decided to renew his contract, and then a few months later they fired him. So it just was a it was just a bad look for, and it didn't say great things about the uh, about the leadership there. Hmm. Um, the stock is up uh, this year. Uh, I've noticed. Um, so that's. Uh, uh, I think a reflection of, um, you know, people have confidence in Iger. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Los Angeles Bureau Chief for the Financial Times, Christopher Grimes. Just turning to uh, the future, um, you said there that um, the board, the industry, I'm taking it, have uh, confidence in Bob to repeat the successes of his past, Bob, Bob Iger, as I'm talking of. What do you see their future being under him? Uh, how, how do you think he's going to go forward and change things for the better? Well, the, the board has given Bob Iger two years. He's uh, in his early 70s now, and they said you've got two years to, to come back and uh, right the ship. Now, he's only been back in the job for eight weeks, and we don't expect to hear a big strategy uh, from him until February after they report their earnings. Um, and, uh, but what we do know is he said that he's going to focus on cutting costs uh, the streaming business is really expensive. I think the thing that uh, that that set off Bob Chapek being fired was they announced they had lost one and a half billion dollars 
in their streaming business uh, in a single quarter. Wow. And that shocked investors. It was a lot higher than people had expected. And now uh, everyone is looking for a way to profitability for streaming. So I think Iger has to come up with a plan to to get to profitability um, within the next couple, year or so uh, on streaming. So that's a huge deal. Mm. He's also reorganizing the or undoing the organization that Bob Chapek put in place that uh, uh, that had left the talent really unhappy inside the company. So he's uh, reorganizing things to uh, give creative people more control than they uh, had uh, before. Uh, And then I think uh, he's also just got to, I think his mere presence has Mm. helped boost morale a little, um, but he's, you know, he's, uh, he's got a lot going on and, uh, you know, the big thing in the news in the last week is he's got to fend off a challenge from uh, a legendary uh, activist shareholder named Nelson Peltz. Yeah, he's not so happy about his return, is he? Well, Peltz is is walking a fine line here. So uh, Peltz bought $900 million worth of stock in Disney, and he's demanding a seat on the board. Um, And Iger and the Disney board don't want to let Peltz on the board. And now Peltz is taking his appeal directly to shareholders and saying um, uh, Disney has lost its way and uh, Disney needs me to help them um, find the way back. Um, Peltz uh, has a history of taking on big companies like Procter & Gamble. And in that fight, he I think he spent a hundred million dollars, and uh, Procter and Gamble had to spend about the same, fending off uh, that fight. So this is going to be unfolding uh, between now and March when Disney has its big shareholder meeting. But for Iger, just as he's trying to get his head around how to reshape the company for the, you know, kind of post-streaming euphoria age. Uh, mm-hmm. um, he's got he's got this distraction to deal with as well. And this, this could be really nasty. It's already yeah, kind of nasty. The last thing he needs really when he's trying to kind of um, introduce stability and bring back that sense of leadership that seems to be just so sadly lacking. Um, Christopher, is the company extremely bloated as well? Um, some of the figures that I looked at in relation to Shapex exit package and the salary, like they were eye-watering. Just to give our, our listeners here in Ireland uh, an idea of the, the, the figures we're talking about, 20 million he got for his exit and goodbye. That's that's not a bad way to leave a company, is it? Right, yeah. Um, that's right. I mean, Shapex uh, had been at the company for 30 years and he, and you know, he... Uh, by some, you know, he did some things pretty well. He was good on uh, getting the theme parks uh, business back and running uh, after the pandemic, after the worst of the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, it's still a big chunk of change. Um, uh, the uh, the communications director uh, that he brought in, and who only lasted for a few months, also got a multi million dollar uh, severance package. So yeah, it's. Um, uh, it's a company uh, that where 
uh, they, they, yeah, it's a big company and they spend a lot. Yeah, big, big ship to turn around. Just finally, um, Christopher, if I can, what do you see um, happening to them in, in the medium to longer term under his direction? Do you think thing, he'll get things back on track and how will they stack up against Netflix and the other streaming companies in the end, in your view? Well, the whole the whole streaming industry is now having this kind of uh, uh, crisis moment. Netflix is the only one that makes money. Disney is uh, Disney, and uh, its its rivals in in streaming are all losing lots of money. And this is not what, a sorry. Situation. Can I interrupt you there? What, why are Netflix making money and the others aren't? What what's the differentiation there? Well, Netflix had a good head start, mm. um, and uh, they've um, you know they've got uh, over 200 million paying customers, um, and they don't have a lot of the baggage that that the uh, that the other legacy companies have. And profitability is still pretty new for Netflix. This just uh, they kind of uh, this happened in the last year or so, um, and now uh, to try to reach profitability, Netflix and Disney. And the others are turning to things like uh, advertisement, uh, uh, advertisements on some t- tiers of their services, um, and uh, and Netflix um, is uh, starting to crack down on people who share their passwords, which is a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and this is going to be an effort this year for for them. So this is a tough thing, and uh, you know. The the core business for um, for a lot of these legacy media companies like Disney and uh, Paramount um, in the United States has been television and has been cable television where uh, uh, people had to pay a very high monthly bill just to watch television uh, and this is that business is dying quickly and mm. it's a it's a big problem. Um, because TV has been subsidizing the, the streaming investments, and now that, that sh- is shrinking really fast. Uh, this is hanging over their heads. Mm. Do you ever think from a brand perspective, though, Disney are just straying too far away from what their core offering was? I found myself watching um, The Patient the other night on Disney. <laughs> There's just something about the juxtaposition of Disney offering those type of things that doesn't really sit quite correctly for me. You know that's interesting. A, a few Wall Street analysts have been talking about this, and uh, and also um, in a in a roundabout way, uh, Nelson Peltz has also been talking about that. Um, I think uh, you know uh, Bob Iger's last big acquisition was Twenty First Century Fox, and this brought a lot of general entertainment into uh, into Disney that it never really had before. Um, you know, it had been it had been Star Wars, it had been Disney animation and Pixar animation and, and that kind of family fair. And all of a sudden they had uh, with with Fox, they had a more general offering. And um, and so I, I think the theory there was that they could better compete with Netflix by having a broader offering of of shows. They could have dramas, they could have, you know, um they could have racier fare. And some people think, you know, that's not, that's not really Disney. Um, yeah. And, maybe uh, it's just a question of 
Coca-Cola trying to sell orange juice and it just just doesn't sit right. But I think that maybe if they put their boardroom shenanigans on the big screen, they might solve some of their streaming problems. Uh, We could talk about this all day. Absolutely. But for now, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. That's Christopher Grimes in Los Angeles, Bureau Chief for the Financial Times. Christopher, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, we'll be looking at the challenges that are faced by suppliers to source medication. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Future Proof is up next and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. But for now, from me, Mandy Johnston, that was Taking Stock. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.